On January 8, 1815, American soldiers under the command of General Andrew Jackson waited behind hastily improvised fortifications just south of New Orleans. They had been in the area just over a month as a response to a British attempt to seize New Orleans and to gain access to the Mississippi River Valley. The War of 1812 featured some spectacular engagements, mainly between the navies of the United States and the United Kingdom. But those various battles did not really produce an advantage on either side. The war was costly for the United States, for most of the war took place on or adjacent to American soil. The British succeeded the previous year of 1814 in attacking Washington, the capital of the young nation, where they burned the White House to the ground, or as it was known in those days, the executive mansion, and caused President and Mrs. Madison to flee for their lives. Late in December of that same year, the British force in the Gulf of Mexico carried out a surprise landing at Lake Bourne, east of New Orleans. A sizable contingent of the landing party slogged across the swamps toward the Mississippi River. General Jackson ordered the building of fortifications. And after a number of skirmishes across the front, the full battle took place on January 8th when 7,500 British troops attacked 6,500 Americans. It was a battle typical of those of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe in terms of its tactics, but on a much smaller scale. It was over in less than 30 minutes. The Americans suffered only 71 killed and wounded, while the British counted more than 2,000 casualties, including 289 dead. And among the dead was the commander of the British force. Soon afterward, the British force boarded their ships and sailed back to England. Some suppose that General Jackson's decisive victory in that battle meant that the Americans had won the war. But just two weeks before the Battle of New Orleans, on Christmas Eve, 1814, the War of 1812 came to its official end with the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. Terms of the treaty restored the two nations to the situation that prevailed before hostilities began in 1812. 
So it was a war without any real consequence except for those who lost their lives or parts of their bodies in it. So one of the largest land engagements of the war was entirely superfluous and had no effect on the war's outcome. Word of the peace treaty reached Jackson's troops just after the battle had been fought. Of course, news traveled much more slowly in those days. So for those who lost their lives in the battle or parts of their bodies on that winter morning, the news of the peace came too late. It's hard to imagine such a circumstance now, but a major battle took place between armies of two nations whose diplomatic representatives agreed officially just three weeks earlier to end the war. Like most peace treaties, the Treaty of Ghent depended on the cooperation of the parties involved. That is, it was a bilateral treaty in which both sides promised to live at peace. But as history has shown, there are instances in which the signing of a peace treaty is no guarantee against a renewal of hostilities. But tonight, as we come to our text, we come to a peace treaty that has been signed in heaven by God, and there is a settled, unyielding outcome. This treaty does not need ratification by any human government. It's a treaty that can never be revoked or violated. In our text this evening, we read of the time when God and his people were bitter foes in the warfare of the soul. But that warfare has ended through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, there is lasting peace. So this text of scripture brings us to the reality that the enmity that existed is over. And we witness in these words the signing of heaven's treaty of peace. This section of this chapter deals with a whole range of theological points, deals with justification, it deals with faith, it deals with the reality of Christian experience, it deals with the Holy Spirit, it deals with the love of God. It deals with the cross of Christ. It deals with the reality of the blood atonement that Christ accomplished. In our text this evening, we come to the reality of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoring of one to favor who fell into disfavor. Reconciliation is the replacement of enmity with friendship. 
It's another component of our assurance of salvation. It's a biblical word. You encounter the word reconciliation in various places in the New Testament, especially in the epistles. Now, some people place reconciliation strictly in a popular framework. They emphasize its subjective aspect. They talk about how we feel now that we are at peace with God. But the text does not examine the subjective side of reconciliation. It looks solely at the activity of God in our salvation. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you see in Christ all that God requires of you. When you rest in Christ, when you trust in Christ, you trust in the one who fulfills all that God demands. Jesus said that the work of God is that you believe on him whom God has sent. So this text speaks of reconciliation, of peace with God through the blood of Jesus. Christ promises that those who come to him by faith will find peace with God. When we examine heaven's treaty of peace, this evening we find it has three components or clauses, if you will. First, the declaration of war or the recognition of war, if you would like. Any treaty of peace comes about as the result of war. This text presents a war like no other. It presents a war in which God and his people were at one time bitter enemies. Before you were converted, the relationship between you and God was one of unrelenting hostility. Now there are people who accept that sinners are enemies of God, and so they should. They confess that sinners are opposed to God. But not so many accept that God is opposed to sinners. That God is the enemy of sinners. And yet, it is undoubtedly the case. Enmity requires two parties. We spoke of General Jackson and his troops at New Orleans. They would have had a difficult time fighting the battle without the enemy force. You have to have two sides to this conflict. So before conversion, you have God on the one side and the sinner on the other side against each other in the warfare that no sinner can win. What was the cause of the war? It was the, the result of disobedience. And the early chapters of the Bible show us how the warfare arose. Let us turn to Genesis chapter 2, first of all. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So here was the command to Adam. And this command came to Adam before God made Eve. But in chapter 3 we read in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. That act of hiding, that act of running away from God was the expression of enmity. It was the expression of warfare. It was the confrontation with God in the atmosphere of rebellion. And from that day, the scriptures of the New Testament make it plain, that state of enmity existed. In verse 12 of this chapter that is before us this evening, you read, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This enmity is the result of the rebellion by creatures that draws forth the wrath of God against them. Now, usually, when countries declare war on each other, they have to mobilize. In fact, for the United States, that was one of the main problems in both world wars. They were not really prepared for the commitment that would be required to go to war. But God did not have to mobilize. His opposition to sin was fully operational from eternity. And his resolve to punish sin reflected his essential being. And the warfare manifested itself in the death of sinners. That is when Adam and Eve, Adam principally, Eve was deceived, Adam was not, when they rebelled against their creator and they ate the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died. God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And so they did. And the result is that over every descendant of Adam, there is that condemnation. You cannot escape from it. The wrath of God John the Baptist said, abideth upon those who have not believed on Christ. 
And the evidence that there is war is the number of people who have already passed through this world and have gone out to hell. Hell is a real place. It has real torments. We learn of it in the Bible. And anyone who doubts the reality of hell should reflect on the words of Christ. For he spoke more about hell than any other person. He said it would be better to lose a hand or a foot or even an eye than to enter hell fire with those things. So the situation is serious. God has declared war against sinners. And it is a war they cannot win. Verse 10 tells us we were enemies. But now we come to the second component of the treaty. The sacrifice for peace. When we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. There is only one way in which this warfare of which we speak can be resolved in favor of your deliverance. And that way is through God's action. It cannot be resolved through your action. God does the reconciling. We were reconciled to God. And how does God make the peace? Through the death of his son. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, to follow our metaphor, treaties between nations are usually the result of diplomatic negotiations after victories on the battlefield, or in the case of the War of 1812, after the realization that no one was going to prevail. But here, God acts unilaterally to bring the war to its end. And he does it not by surrendering his law, but by surrendering his son. He gives his son up to death so that sinners might be reconciled to God. God makes the sacrifice for peace. God moves to resolve the conflict. And this sacrifice involved substitution. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. We've referred to this verse so many times that you may be able to quote it without looking at it. Speaking of what God has done, he hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. The one who knew no sin was Christ. But God made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We knew sin well. Christ did not know it by experience. We did. But God made him to be sin for us. 
So there was a substitution there in that sacrifice. And there was suffering in that sacrifice. Christ suffered. The price of this reconciliation of which we read by the death of his son was the suffering, not only the physical suffering, but the mental and spiritual suffering that Christ endured upon the cross. The Bible stresses the nature of Christ's death as the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, the scriptures tell us there is no remission of sins. So Christ suffered for us. As we read in 1 Corinthians 5, the Passover lamb. Because the sacrifice involved substitution and it involved suffering and it involved satisfaction. Jesus, in his death upon the cross, Resolved every issue of the war. He paid everything that was needed. He made peace. And there was a final step to secure the peace. And that develops usually at the end of negotiations in treaties between nations. But in this case, we come to the signature of security. The signature of security. Paul argued in our text from the greater truth to the lesser truth. Notice how it's put. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So that was a very serious situation. So that's the greater truth. Not that the other part is any less true, but it is not on the same level as that resolution of the enmity. Much more being reconciled, being made at peace, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies. God reconciled us to himself by the death of his son, and if we have been reconciled to God by the death of his son, then it must be true that we shall never be lost. Much more than being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, in his life, through his life. That's the signature of the treaty in the dramatic ink of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Let us turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John's Gospel, chapter 11. The context is the grave of Lazarus. The friend of Jesus who died and was in the grave for four days. And Martha said to the Lord, if you had only been here, he would not have died. And Jesus said in verse 23, thy brother shall rise again. And Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
So Martha knew well about the end of all things. There's going to be a resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That is, though he were in his grave, he's living. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, or shall never die forever. Here's the signature on the treaty. We don't have to wonder if all is really well. Because Christ has risen from the dead. You will never be lost then. If you have trusted in Christ. What could keep you from heaven's shore. If you have trusted in Christ. If God has reconciled you to himself. Through the death of his son. What can keep you from heaven's shore. From being accepted at heaven's gate. Christ saves his people, we read in Hebrews chapter 7, to the uttermost. So we know that Christ lived for you. We know that Christ died for you. We know that Christ rose again for you and ascended for you. So that you are in him. And where he is, you must come. It is his will that his people be with him where he is. You will never fall out of him. So heaven's treaty of peace has been signed and secured forever. God has reconciled you to himself. Through the blood of his son upon the cross. And if that is true, and it is true, then how much more is it true that you will be saved by his life? The fact that Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended to God's right hand and is there now, waiting and expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, is the pledge. To each of Christ's people. That they too in their flesh. Shall look upon God. That was the great hope of Job. I know that my redeemer liveth. Our redeemer lives. And so the treaty of peace. Can never be revoked. It can never be violated. It is all on God's side. We have been reconciled to God through the death of his son. Let us then rejoice that we shall be saved by his life. And so live from day to day in the confidence, the assurance that the work that God has done through the death of his son is the guarantee that we will Come to be where Christ is. We have thought of those whom we have known and loved, 
whom God has taken from us to be with him. Kim Wagner being the most recent such case. Now in the presence of the Lord. All the frailty and inability of the body in this life. All of that over. And now because of the truth of this text. She has been reconciled unto God. And now she is saved by his life. This is the treaty of peace that heaven drafted, that heaven signed, and that therefore will never be broken. May God give us the grace tonight to rest in this truth and to know the reality that we shall be saved from wrath through peace. 